0: go. Just getting everybody seated. Are we ready? Yes. Knock, knock. Yes, A, little A little old lady. Wow, I didn't know you could yodel like that. <laughs> knock, knock. Yes, Hatch. Imagine everybody sneezing at once. One more for good measure. Knock knock. Who's there? Deja. deja vu. Knock knock. Who's there? Deja. deja Whoo. Was it just me, or did I just have a powerful moment of déjà vu? <laughs> I'm glad to see we're off to a good start this morning. The point I'm getting to is this. Suppose you're standing at a door knocking and the person on the other side of the door says, who's there? How do you answer? You say your name, of course. But suppose you were going to answer that question even more deeply. Not just stating your name, but telling the person on the other side of the door, who you really are, at the very core of your being, your most fundamental sense of identity, what would you say? Today, that's what we're going to talk about. We're launching a new sermon series on the Old Testament book of Daniel, and we're tackling the first thought-provoking story found there. It's a story that challenges us to ponder who am i really let's start with a prayer god we come here to this place because we need each other we come here to this place because we don't want to walk this journey in isolation We come here to this place because we want to be part of something greater than ourselves, the work that you're doing in this world. But most of all, we come to this place because we need you in our life. We need your wisdom. We need the wisdom of your holy scriptures. So please, speak to us today from your holy word. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. About 600 years <clears throat> excuse me, before the time of Christ, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon invaded the southern half of Israel, a region known as Judah, stormed the capital city of Jerusalem, and turned Judah into a vassal state. As part of that process, Daniel 1.3 tells us that the king, Nebuchadnezzar, commanded his palace master Ashpenaz to bring some of the Israelites to the royal, of the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect, to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Chaldean is another word for Babylonian. Historians tell us that in the ancient world, When one nation conquered another, it was not uncommon for the conquering king to forcibly expatriate the ruling class from the conquered nation, bringing them into the conquering nation and settling them there as a way of assimilating them into the dominant conquering culture. It was a a way of reducing the odds that this defeated ruling class would try to launch a rebellion. As part of that process, it was also not uncommon for the young men from those ruling class families to be inducted into a re-education campaign, a re-education program operated by the conquering king to prepare those young men for positions in the court and government of the conquering king. Again, a way of pacifying the vanquished population of assimilating them into the dominant culture. Daniel was selected to be inducted into One of those kinds of programs operated by King Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel was plucked up from his home in Jerusalem and transported 900 miles to Babylon. Imagine what that must have felt like for him. A stranger in a strange land, completely immersed now in an entirely foreign culture, a culture that was absolutely determined to assimilate him. We will make you one of us. But as we read on, we discover that Daniel is someone who knew who he was and where he was from. So that if anyone were to say to him, tell me about yourself, who are you really? The first words out of his mouth would be, I am a child of Abraham. I am a follower of Yahweh, the God of Israel. I come from a far away land. Babylon is not my home. All of which is profoundly relevant for each one of us because I would submit that each one of us in our own unique way is on a journey in our life that is similar to Daniels. Let me explain what I mean. At Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate, when Pontius Pilate was interrogating him, Pilate wanted to ascertain the risk that Jesus would lead an insurrection against the occupying Roman forces. So Pilate asks Jesus if he considers himself a king. Jesus, in effect, affirms that, but then goes on to say this. John but my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate was mystified by this. I mean, who ever heard of a king who wouldn't let his followers fight for him? Pilate was dumbfounded. It was as if He was talking to somebody from a different planet, which actually he was. Jesus sent from heaven to earth not to be reeducated, not to be assimilated, but rather to bring us heaven's truth to save us. Jesus was not of this world. It's as if he was an alien come to show us the way and all we who follow Jesus are now called to internalize that same sense of self identity when Jesus prayed for us his followers throughout the generations right before his crucifixion in John the 17th chapter look this is by the way the prayer that we studied last week look again at a part of the prayer we didn't focus on last week Jesus prayed for us father I have given them we his followers your word, and the world has hated them. Why? Because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but I ask that you protect them from the evil in the world. So we, as followers of Jesus, a part of our core identity is supposed to be this sense that this is not really where we belong, that that we, like Jesus, are sent here not to be assimilated, not to be reeducated, but to be powerful change agents. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, all these heroes of the Bible died in faith, having confessed that they were what? Strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they'd been thinking of that country from which they came, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God and has prepared a city for them. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Amen. Elsewhere in the New Testament, First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, Beloved, I urge you as what? aliens and exiles, to do what? Conduct yourself honorably among the people of the world, why? So that they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God. For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of the one who called you out of the darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people." You're familiar with the old sitcom? third rock from the sun. In a sense, we're supposed to here on earth feel like those four extraterrestrials. A little bit out of place. What a strange place. We come from somewhere far, far away. The Apostle Paul sums it up this way. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship in heaven so that the new testament over and over and over and over again is trying to drive home to us that that we are above all else the core sense of our identity should be as followers of jesus as citizens of heaven who have been born from above i jeff Miner, and many different things i'm a husband a son a brother, an uncle. I'm a cable news junkie who can watch back-to-back-to-back news programs and be unfazed by it. I love to play basketball. I'm a pastor, a, a, a former lawyer. I'm a really funny guy who tells hilarious jokes. I'm now telling you how I see myself, not how you see me. I'm a lover of dogs and a crazy cat lady all rolled into one. And I am a creature of habit who relishes routine and can thrive doing the same thing over and over and over again. Just ask any of my colleagues here at the church and they'll tell you that for lunch every day, I eat precisely the same thing. Tuna out of a can on a multi-grain toasted muffin with one slice of American cheese, a little mustard drizzled on the top, a green salad on the side with non-fat ranch dressing, one Vortman's sugar-free oatmeal cookie, and I wash it all down with a tall glass of ocean Spray cran mango juice, which by the way is to die for. (laughs) Every single day That is my lunch. Why? Why, Lord? Why? Because I love it. Why? That's, That's just who I am. But you can know all of that about me and still not really know me. Because when it comes down to it, who I really am, The irreducible center of my identity is none of that stuff. Rather, it is I am a follower of Jesus, a citizen of heaven who has been reborn from above. Because you see, following Jesus is not just a part of life. It's a way of life. It's a way of life that sets us, or at least it should, set us apart and make us different in some really observable ways so that people who are getting acquainted with you as they get to know you, as they see how you live and how you respond to the circumstances of life, they should be regularly thinking to themselves, you're really different in a good way when I was a little boy. One day, I overheard a conversation that my mom was having with our next-door neighbor and her good friend, Pam Nelson. Mom didn't know I was listening in on the conversation. It was summertime. The window was open. She was leaning leaning on the window seal, speaking through the screen. Pam was standing outside. I had started to walk out of my bedroom when I heard that mom was having this conversation and immediately since she was having one of those private adult conversations when you're a kid, you tune into those conversations because that's when you learn the good stuff, right? (laughs) So I stop in the doorway of my room to listen and I hear mom telling Pam that mom's doctor was afraid that she had a deadly illness and had sent her to get some heavy duty tests. Mom said, he thinks I might have lupus. Pam said, What's that? Mom said explained that it's a potentially deadly disease, especially back then, back in the day. Pam said, Wow. Mom said, by the way, I I hear a radio playing. Can we there we go. All right, very good. Mom told Pam that this was a potentially deadly disease, but she said, I just got the test results back. It took two whole weeks, she said, but the tests are negative. Pam said, wow, Katie, I'll bet you were scared. And I'll never forget what my mom said. She said, no, not really. I guess I just figured it was in God's hands and what will be will be. And as I was standing there in my doorway, I thought to myself, what planet is she from? She's like this superhero from another planet who's come to show us the way, like she she can look death in its face and be genuinely at peace. Which was very unlike me because as a kid I was a hypochondriac, thought I had a million different diseases, which I probably learned from my dad who had cancer when he was 30 and was deathly afraid of dying. And that here's mom saying, it's in God's hands, what will be will be. And I found myself thinking, I want what she's got. Which brings us back to the story of Daniel. If Daniel and his three close friends, commonly called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if Daniel and his three friends didn't belong in Babylon, why did God pluck them up from their home and plop them down there? The answer is found in Daniel 1-4, which tells us they, Daniel and his three friends, were endowed with knowledge and insight and competent to serve in the king's palace. In other words, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had important things to share that were desperately needed in Babylon. God did not put them there to be tourists on vacation. God did not put them there to entertain them. God put them there on assignment, on a special assignment, to take the heavenly values they had learned in their homeland and to share that in the darkness that was Babylon. They were there not to be assimilated, not to be reeducated, they were there to be God's powerful, positive change agents. It's the same with us. God has not put us here to be tourists on vacation. We're not here to be entertained. We are here on a special assignment to take the heavenly values that Jesus has taught us and the spirit that Jesus has put in our heart and share that in the darkness that is this world. Like Daniel was sent to Babylon to share the light, we have been put here on earth to share the light. I saw a video clip this past week from uh, Tyree Nichols' funeral where his mother was eulogizing her son. She stood up at the podium barely able to hold herself upright under the crushing weight of her grief. She said very few words, and yet she said everything. In a very quiet, halting way, her eyes downcast, she stood there And said, these were her exact words. The only thing that keeps me going is my belief that my son was on an assignment. I guess his assignment was completed. And he was called home. That's all she said. Tyre was here on assignment. A special assignment his mother believes to be a powerful, positive change agent in this world. That should be true of all of us in our own unique ways. We are here not to be assimilated, but to be God's powerful change agents. A history teacher said to one of her fifth grade students, Winnie, name something important that we have in the world today that we didn't have 10 years ago. Winnie thought for a second, then said, me. When you think about it, that's a brilliant answer the world has you. Your life matters. Picture it. The Pope, Billy Graham, and Pat Robertson were all on a plane flying over the Atlantic when it crashed. They all died simultaneously and ended up at the pearly gates in heaven. St. Peter was flustered. St. Peter said, we weren't expecting you. Your, your quarters aren't ready yet. I, I don't know what to do. I can't let you in, but I can't send you back. And that's when St. Peter had a brainstorm. He picked up his celestial cell phone and called Satan. <laughs> Satan, he says, I need to ask you a favor. I've got three guys here who belong to us, but their quarters aren't ready yet. Could you take them in for a few days? I promise there'll be no trouble and I'll owe you big time. Satan reluctantly agreed. But less than 24 hours later, Satan is back on his celestial cell phone. Pete, he says, you've got to get these guys out of here. Why? St. Peter says, because, he says, they're disrupting everything. How so? St. Peter says, well, Satan says, Billy Graham's getting everybody saved. And the Pope's telling everybody they're forgiven. And Pat Roberts has already raised enough money to air condition the whole place. We, in our own unique way, should be like that. We should be disruptive people. We should be the kind of people who are not afraid to be countercultural, not afraid to be different, who are willing to let our light shine into the darkness that is Earth's hellscape. Because we're not here to conform. We're here to transform this world. But here's the thing. Whenever you are suddenly thrust into a foreign environment, the question becomes, will that foreign environment change me? Or will I change it? Because let me tell you something, the pressure to conform is enormous. Just ask Daniel. No sooner had Daniel arrived in Babylon and been inducted into King Nebuchadnezzar's program than King Nebuchadnezzar attempted to give Daniel a new name, to rename him. Daniel's name, a Hebrew name, a Jewish name, contains within it the Hebrew word most commonly used to refer to the God of Israel. That word is El, Most commonly used to refer to the God of Israel, Daniel's very name was a testimony to his core identity as a follower of the God of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar gave him a new name, tried to give him a new name, Belteshazzar. Bel, the first syllable you see in that word, is the name of one of the two most powerful gods in Babylon. So that right out of the gate, Nebuchadnezzar is is trying to pressure Daniel to give up his core identity as a follower of the God of Israel and embrace a new identity as a follower of the God Baal. Right out of the gate, he's pressuring Daniel to let go of the heavenly values he brought with him from Israel and to embrace the values of Babylon. Not just that, but when Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are inducted into this program, they receive what at first blush sounds like really good news. They are told, Daniel 1.5, that the king had assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. Woo-hoo, right? I mean, Babylon, the most powerful nation on the face of the earth at the time. King Nebuchadnezzar, the wealthiest man on the, in the world uh, at that time. What? The very same things that Nebuchadnezzar was eating, they were now going to be eating all of the delicacies of Babylon. It sounds like great news, except that Nebuchadnezzar's food wasn't kosher. Not just that, but under the customs of the time, before the meat was served to the king, it would have been ritually offered to the god Bel and Nabu. And the wine... That was poured before it was poured would be offered ritually as an oblation to Baal and Nabu so it was just another one of those pressure points saying you're one of us now come on don't be different don't be extreme eat our food take our names we want you to be part of us but Daniel And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they knew who they were. They knew where they were from. And they were determined to be who they were. So Daniel and his three friends go to the palace guard and and plead with him to conduct just a a 10-day experiment. For 10 days, don't give us the king's rations. For 10 days, give us water and vegetables. And at the end of those 10 days, if we don't look as good, if not better, than the other Hebrew students in this program, then you can take a different course. Think of it. Of all of the Israelite students in this program, only four of them were resisting. Only four of them were saying, no, we know who we are. So Daniel pleads with the palace guard. He reluctantly agrees. And 10 days into this experiment, they look just as good, just as healthy as the other students. And so the, the, the guard allows the experiment to continue through the entire three years of the re-education program. And when it comes to the end of the re-education program, and it's time now for Daniel and his three friends to be presented to King Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar cross-examines them. We're told, Daniel one twenty in every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So that now, finally, Daniel and his three friends were in a position where they could be influential, powerful, positive change makers. They were now going to become senior officials in the government of Babylon. Each one of us is on a similar journey. From our home to this planet, this Babylonian planet, there's a lot of pressure here to conform, be like the rest of us. We have to make a choice. Are you courageous enough to be different? Are you courageous enough to live counterculturally? Which raises our last question. In what ways might Jesus want us to live counter Culturally, we've already seen one very important way. When Pilate was interrogating Jesus, and Jesus said, If my kingdom were of this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over. But Jesus forbade his followers from taking the sword and defending him with force because Jesus was teaching his followers that we don't fight our battles like the people of the world do. Hate cannot overcome hate. Only love can do that, as Dr. King said. And so Jesus was teaching his followers that we don't fight our battles like the rest of the world. We don't treat and come against our opponents and enemies like the rest of the world. We don't try to crush and destroy our enemies. We seek to transform them to redeem them. And only love can do that. Love, meekness, humility, kindness, and patient persuasion. Palitha Jaya Suaria tells a story in a sermon he called Beautiful Acts for God. He tells a story about an Indian Pastor friend of his who was sitting in his church office one day when an angry man comes storming in and, and just uh, uh, bellows out all of these these allegations against the pastor, and then demands to hear the pastor's response. The pastor didn't say a word. instead, he he stood up, walked out of the office, went to another room, And a minute or so later, he came back with a big basin of warm water and a towel over his shoulder. He knelt down in front of the angry man. The angry man was unnerved by this. What's going on? Are you from another planet or something? The pastor explained that though the allegations were false, he had obviously upset this man, and he felt led to ask forgiveness. So he said, I want to wash your feet. In some church traditions, that is a symbol of humility and reconciliation. As the pastor proceeded to wash the man's feet, the man began to weep. He was transformed. They were reconciled and became brothers again. Because hate can't overcome hate. Only love can. Love has the power to destroy our enemies in the sense that it transforms them. It changes them. We, as followers of Jesus, are not supposed to use the weapons of the world. Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who misuse you. Why? So we be weak? No. That pastor was anything but weak. That power was wielding the very power of heaven to transform his enemy instead of destroying his enemy. That's what we're called to do. The Bible says in Romans 12 to be not conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and yet when I get the strength to occasionally go on Facebook and read what people are saying I am struck by how many people who claim the name of Jesus are the kings and queens of snark and using words as weapons to attack their enemies not to persuade them but to belittle them to make them appear stupid which only pushes them further away, hate begets more hate only love can overcome hate so why do we as followers of Jesus use words as weapons oh Jeff everybody uses snark these days be not conformed to this world be transformed if the world doesn't see hope in followers of Jesus where will the world find hope these things ought not to be we are called to fight with different weapons. Do you have the courage to be different, to live counterculturally? culturally I, uh, I saw a picture the other day. One of you sent me a picture. It looks like <clears throat> this. The headline says, The owners unleashed this dog when their house caught fire. They ran out, but the dog went back in to save the kitten. We see that and we say, wow, that's beautiful. We who follow Jesus ought to be like that dog. We ought to be the kind of people who do the kinds of things that other people say, wow, that's beautiful. I know a doctor who had a patient who was an immigrant from India, who while in the United States became seriously ill, and her kidneys failed. She needed a kidney. This doctor is a follower of Jesus, what would Jesus do? So the doctor decided, now mind you, this is a patient, not a friend, I mean patients can be friends, but the relationship was primarily doctor to patient, but the doctor decided to donate their kidney. Who does that? Would your doctor do that <laughs> for you? I mean, we wouldn't expect it, right? That doctor is part of our congregation. And that Indian woman before she returned home worshipped with us. Because whatever that doctor had, she wanted. We who follow Jesus should be like that. We should be the kind of people who do things that cause other people to say, wow, you are really different in a good way. Let me close with this. Another one of the great tests, another one of the great challenges of whether we are following Jesus or assimilating to the world is how we respond when life frustrates us. You're probably familiar with Chuck Colson. He was the founder of Prison Fellowship and International Christian Ministry to imprisoned people around the globe. And Chuck Colson, in one of his books, told a story about a time when he was in the airport in Jakarta, Indonesia. He and some of his uh, traveling ministers had been on an overnight flight. So they'd been on a plane all night long. Now they're in the Jakarta airport to catch a connecting flight so that they can get to the next place where they're supposed to present and minister. But he says, we found ourselves in this incredibly long line to check in for our connecting flight. And the airport in Jakarta was sweltering hot. We were completely exhausted. He says, I was standing there with my ticket and my sweaty hands looking at this impossible line and realizing we're not going to be able to make our connecting flight. We're going to miss our ministry opportunity in the next place. It's the kind of situation that just wants to make you scream. But Chuck Colson knew what the Bible says. Give thanks in all things. Chuck Colson knew what the Bible says. Rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. Always. So he made a conscious decision. Instead of being miserable, I'm going to make the most of this moment. He started laughing and talking to his traveling companions, telling stories. Before long, they were, they were having a little party right there in the sweltering heat, standing in this impossible line. Two years after this, out of the blue, Chuck gets a letter from a man he's never met who lives in Singapore, a businessman who lives in Singapore, who in his letter tells Chuck that though he's of a different faith, he was in the habit of sending his children to a Presbyterian church to get a good moral education. The man said, one Sunday when I showed up to pick up my kids, the sermon wasn't over yet. (laughs) Imagine that. And so he listened to the end of the sermon. The presenter held up a book written by Chuck Colson that happened to have Chuck Colson's picture on the book jacket. The Singaporean man thought nothing of it, went on his way. But a few months after that, that man happened to be in the Jakarta airport at the same time as Chuck Colson was. That man, standing in an adjacent, equally long and impossible line, looks over to the opposite line and recognizes, oh, that's the guy who wrote that book. That's the guy on that book jacket. He's supposed to be a follower of Jesus. And so he decided to watch him and see how he responded to this situation where everybody was livid and angry and wanting to yell at somebody. And he was so blown away by what he saw that when he got back home, he bought one of Chuck's books, read it, and now he was writing Chuck Colson to say, I've decided that I too want to be a follower of Jesus. It's like the old saying says, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. People, people are watching you and looking for a reason for hope. Let's be like Jesus. Let's be like Daniel. Let's show them something different, something otherworldly, something counterintuitive. Instead of being changed by the world, let's change the world. This is your special assignment should you choose to accept it, to live like you're from another planet. Let's show the world there's a better way, the way of Jesus, the way of heaven. Dare to be different.